from Flourish DX, this is the Psych Health and Safety Canada podcast. With workplace mental health becoming a priority for businesses who want to retain staff and prevent burnout, this is the source of information for creating sustainable and psychologically healthy workplaces in Canada. Hi, and welcome to the Psych Health and Safety podcast. I'm your host, Marianne Baton. And the aim of these podcast series um, that happen in Singapore, Australia, and Canada is really to share practical knowledge about how to protect psychological health and safety in the workplace. Each week, we have interesting guests from across Canada and around the world, and they'll share tips and strategies for those who want to make a positive difference in the workplace. My guest for today is I, David Daniels. And uh, David and I met through LinkedIn and we connected. He has a fascinating history as uh, a firefighter, a health and safety professional. He's just finished his PhD looking into psychosocial factors and specifically how they may impact those in the black community. David is uh, a storyteller and uh, a consultant. And uh, I really think you're going to enjoy this. Welcome, David. And I'm so thrilled that you agreed to join me. Um, We met over LinkedIn uh, when you reached out. And I realized right away we were kindred spirits looking (laughs) to make a positive difference in the world. And so I wanted to start with you really just sharing a bit about your journey, how you got to this place. Well, uh, the the journey has been uh, very interesting. I I'm actually the eldest of seven kids. Uh, I was born in Seattle, Washington, and my mom was 14 years old when I was born. And that experience, although I didn't realize it until I you know had a few more birthdays, framed a lot of you know how I see the world. Uh, how I interact with the world, how I interact with other people. Uh, I was told, it's interesting that we're having this conversation today because I was told, I don't know, I don't recall whether my mom mentioned it later. Someone said that I would be in speech therapy for the rest of my life starting in the second grade. And as I've gotten older, I realized that a lot of that had to do with the fact that I was a, a, a little black kid in a predominantly white neighborhood, uh, whose schools were substandard, who you know, who was labeled as if I'd never be successful at really anything because my dad's not around, and all these other kind of narratives that, and I was always a little bit resistant to being told what to do from everybody other than my mom. Not to be quite honest, I was a, <laughs> I was a rule follower at home, but once I got outside of that kind of environment, I was just never really into you know, doing exactly what I was told. I wanted to get good grades. That's the only thing I can recall for most of my life. I wanted to get good grades. And I still have my kindergarten report card to prove it. But, uh, but again, along the way, uh, I've, you know, tried to, uh, tried to continue to get, get good grades, basically. So, you know, I, I played some sports in high school and you got a scholarship to go to a small college in, in Wisconsin. That lasted about three weeks. Because again, I got out there and figured out that I'm the only, there's only seven other people, six other people who look like me here. I've never even taken a plane ride before. Nobody in my family's ever been to college. So what am I doing? So went back and got into the 
did the construction industry because I needed a job and that led to get into the fire service. And I did that for 30 years. And, you know, one, again, it was a long, it's been a long travel journey. I've uh, seen a lot of things. Uh, a lot of them I enjoyed, some of them I didn't. And uh, I've spent the last few years really kind of focusing on understanding myself and understanding what interests me and trying to figure out how to do things I like with people I want to be around for as long as they last. Great. And, and so you're, you've left us in the fire service and you told me before a little bit about your experience, um, especially as a black man in the fire service. Can you share some of that? Yeah, that was uh, that was interesting. So I showed up in a little fire station in in Seattle. Uh, it's where the training facility was at the time. They've built a new one since. But uh, I show up as a 21 year old kid uh, with a bunch of guys yelling, and and they were all guys. Uh, that that means something here down the road. <laughs> uh, yelling and screaming at me about you're now in the Seattle Fire Department and we're going to turn you into a firefighter and all that type of thing. And uh, we actually had a bit of a revolt in the recruit class. There were 32 people in the class, and we had a bit of a revolt about it, and a little over halfway because we thought they were yelling at us too much. Now, uh, what we didn't realize is that's how they treated everybody. That was just the culture at the time that they yelled and screamed and you know, kind of the you know, what we hear from folks that have been in the military and all that, the kind of the drill sergeant mentality, because again, that was the culture. And uh, that, that carried on actually most of my career, but I, I never really liked it. So as I got uh, the opportunity to get promoted, and I got promoted really early on in my career, I'd been on the job for about six and a half years when I got promoted, I was 27 years old, and I got promoted and I never supervised anybody in my life. They didn't give me any training on how to supervise people, so I made it up. Uh, the reason that I didn't get any training is because I was too young to go to the class that they had, and they didn't think I'd get promoted anyway, so they said, oh, you can't go. So I said, okay, so I'll get promoted, and I'll show you. And that, that, again, that goes back to the trying to get good grades thing. You know, this thing in my head always feeling like I had to prove that I belonged here. Uh, I was told more than once the only reason I got hired is because they had affirmative action. And that's probably true. Uh, I took a test with 3,000 people, ended up in the top 10%, which is only in the top 300, and I got into recruit class because the pre-recruit process that I didn't get into, somebody got injured. So I, I got dropped in there as a minority candidate. And uh, 20 years later, I was the only person to in that entire class to get promoted above battalion chief, to... Uh, to become a fire chief anyplace else, to, you know, all this other stuff that evidently that process really wasn't looking for. And, and again, as I've understand it, understood it more, the fire services are like a lot, at least in the United States anyway, it is the third least diverse publicly funded thing we do in this country. Second by, behind secondary school teachers and EMTs, which also tend to be firefighters most of the time. So it's a predominantly a white male dominated industry uh, with a lot of good people. Um, but with some people who feel like that anybody who is not white male can't do it. Um, and I, I'll, I'll share this with you right now. Even today, today, uh, if I were to look for a position in a fire department someplace, one of the first things I do is look at the demographics. Because if it's a predominantly white community, 
there's no use in me applying there because A, I won't get the job. And if I do get the job, I probably won't be treated all that well. That's kind of my life experience. And it's an experience I've found from other folks. So it, it kind of is what it is. And as, as I've had, again, more birthdays, I accept that's the way that that is. And I try to find other things and trying to find places where I'm accepted for who I am and the way I am. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think your story is not, um, it's not uncommon. And people like yourself who have a lot to offer um, as things shift, which they seem to be now where mm-hmm. recruitment and finding talent is more difficult. Those organizations that are not set up to welcome and support um, diversity and inclusion are going to miss out. They're going to miss out on the talent. Um, Yeah. So David, tell me a little bit about your research. Well, uh, interestingly, my research is actually really connected to my fire service experience because so my last fire chief's job, I was actually recruited uh, I was sitting in a, uh, in a meeting and the, one of the, the, as a matter of fact, the board of a small fire district, he comes to me in this meeting and he says, you know, we'd really like to talk to you about our fire chief job. And I was in another job at the time. It's kind of like, you know, you're married and somebody hits on you. <laughs> so, um, so I says, well, no, I think I'm doing pretty good where I am. And, you know, although I, I come to find out I wasn't doing as well as I thought, but anyway, uh, I, so they talked me into going to work for these folks by offering me more money than I'd ever made before in my life. And, you know, from some, in my community, I was rich, uh, but they also offered to pay for my doctorate. I go, I'm in. And so uh, I went um, and they, you know, funded the, you know, first, you know, little over a year or so of me, of my doctoral studies. Now they, because of the psychosocial hazards that they exposed me to, I didn't know the words at the time, uh, basically the way they treated me as a human being, I only lasted there a little under two years. And uh, I just had to go someplace else because I, I found myself driving to work in tears and I didn't think that was right. Um, so I continued my studies and um, I, that experience of being bullied, harassed and mistreated even at the top of the organization, it just really stuck with me and it left a, a real imprint. And I tried to, over the course of, you know, you know as I distanced myself, is to try to figure out what that was about. And so that led me to, uh, to doing research. Uh, and my study was, uh, it was a qualitative study, first of all. And we, we talked a little bit about collecting data uh, early on. I believe, particularly from a safety perspective, there's a lot of quantitative data out there, a lot of numbers, a lot of facts, a lot of figures, a lot of correlation studies, you know, multiple regressions, all this other type stuff, but there's not enough human stuff. And to me, qualitative research is more human because it's about asking questions of other human beings and looking at the answers as the product of the research itself. So that's what I did is I asked, uh, I actually one, two, three, there were, I originally reached out to about 14 or 15 other black people, not at the top and not at the bottom of their organizations, basically middle manager types, some were supervised, some who didn't. 
And I asked them about their lived experience of exposure to psychosocial hazards. And first of all, I, I, I asked them, well, what's work been like for you? And then I explained to them what a psychosocial hazard was and that actually changed their perspective on, on what their life experience had been and what their work experience had been. Because again, I don't think they necessarily had the language. And I find that particularly in these, you know, when we talk about uh, psychological safety, psychosocial hazard exposures, a lot of folks don't, they have the experience, but don't have the words necessarily to kind of, you know, talk about what's happened to them. And I found a lot of consistency around how these folks were treated. Now, I, I, I don't want to go as far to say is that it's because they were Black, they were treated this way. In some cases it was, but their experiences were similar from the perspective of being a Black person. Um, so I, 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 I got a lot out of it uh, to include, you know, I, I got a grade <laughs> and the, uh, after I defended the, uh, the folks on my, on, my, uh, on my review called me doctor, which means you are one once they say that. <laughs> so, um, but but it, was, it was interesting research and, and I picked this particular type of research, not, be, not because I didn't understand and wanted to learn more about it, but because I'd experienced it and wanted to, to see what other people's experiences were. So I, I did what's called a hermeneutic phenomenological approach, which says you can't really, you don't want to separate yourself from this. You have some connection to it, but you want to learn a little bit more about it. So can you tell us some of the stories of the common experiences that mm. it, your subjects had? Well, one of the, the, the ones, so the, um, the overriding kind of issue that sticks with me is the reactions that these that my participants had to the exposure. So I gave them what I called a psychosocial hazard inventory, which I created. Uh, now, I didn't create it totally from scratch. I have to give full credit. It, it is based on the ISO 45003 standard, which came out in June of 2001, which I happened to be about a month before I started my research. So it came out, I was gonna create my own and that came out, I went, this is perfect. So I used a good percentage um, of that standard as the basis of my inventory. So I gave the inventory and then we talked about the inventory of the 88 items, the 88 psychosocial hazards that are identified in the standard. And I had people just tell me, have you been exposed to that or not? Yes or no, pretty simple. I had a range from a person who had experienced 20% of the hazards and another person who had 90%. And in my head, as I got that data back, I, I assumed that the person with the 90% would be affected in some kind of more severe way. And that really wasn't the case. The difference was how prepared for the hazard the person was in advance. What, so the, the, the expectation and their reality, or at least their perceived reality. And I find that's actually where stress occurs. It's the gap between our expectations and the reality that we perceive. And psychosocial hazard exposure is all about perception, totally. It's totally about, because two people can be exposed to the same situation, the same uh, work environment, the same even set of words and experience it very differently. And they experience it, the, the other area I delved into a bit is this discussion about stress, because stress is often brought up as, well, that's the issue we have to be concerned with. 
But stress is not always negative. Stress is on a on a continuum. There's distress, which, you know, that's the one that gets a lot of conversation about how it raised my blood pressure, my hair fell out, and, you know, and I couldn't sleep and all that type of thing, which is distress. But there's also eustress, which motivates us. It's the kind of stress you feel when you're involved in athletics or you're taking a test or you're, you're, you're doing a puzzle. You're, you know, you're having a conversation and you get kind of, you know, excited and you feel yourself breathing a little faster, kind of like I am right now, because I really enjoy this. <laughs> but that's eustress. It is actually good for you. It's positive. It's motivating. And it depends on the person as to which end of that continuum they're exposed to based on their perceptions, based on how it hits their brain and how it processes through their, through their system. So, I mean, these are um, all great points. I'm thinking back to some of the literature that I read on post-traumatic stress disorder and that one of the main factors about if you and I are both exposed to the same traumatic incident, if I expected the incident and was prepared for how to address it and you weren't, you're much more likely to have PTSD than what I would. And uh, I think in the fire service, in the police service, in healthcare, that maybe we could do a better job of preparing people who, um, for what they're going to be exposed to. Uh, One example, David, that uh, I had not thought about until somebody brought it forward is a librarian in a major Mm -hmm. city. And you think, well, they're dealing with books, right? How traumatic is that? But people come in off of the streets in various uh, states of uh, emotional upset or impairment. And these librarians then are having to deal with that. And they have no training, no idea that this is part of the job. And in some cities, of course, now they're much more uh, forward thinking and they prepare. But so much in the workplace as well as in life is exactly what you said the difference between our expectation and the reality yes yes knowing all of this the experiences that the people that you studied had and what your own experience was what's your advice for an employer who says i do care and i do want to do the right thing So, so you made me think about one thing when you mentioned the word caring. There is a difference between empathy and caring. And I find my experience has been, there are some folks who just don't care, to be quite honest. They don't. Uh, you are a tool, uh, a human resource. People literally treat them like replaceable resources. So they don't really care. They care about the degree to which the individual comes to their organization and can do the work, make them money, and that's it. And that's that's reality. And I, I believe that those of us as, uh, as other human beings, we have to make a decision about if that's what we want to do. And there are some who are deciding that they don't. There are others who are empathetic. They they kind of get it. They feel, you know, they feel something for you. The question is whether or not they're going to do anything about it. So I can feel something for you, feel, you know, you know, that's really a sad situation. It's like we, you know, my wife and I, we sometimes sit around and we kind of smile. Uh, these, the commercials that'll come on, it'll show the kids and 
some part of the world that, you know, with the distended bellies, you can't eat, so on and so forth. And, you know, then there'd be this plea or the one from the, the animal welfare kind of organization that says, oh, look at the poor puppies and they're, you know, give us money. Um, and, and they work for some people and don't work for others, but that, that they're, that's empathy will get you to watch it. Caring will get you to do something about it. And then there are folks who actually who care. And so if you're an organization who cares, care means doing something, not saying something. Saying is important, but we evaluate ourselves based on our intent. We evaluate other people based on what they do. And, and frankly, sometimes it doesn't even matter what your intent was. There are people who their intent was to do one thing, but because the person interpreted it as positive and as a good thing, they, they enjoyed it. They enjoyed whatever it was. So it's about what you do, not about what you say. Uh, I, and I bring this up a lot for a lot of the, the groups that I get, in particular when we have conversations about you know, the time we're in and you know, the great resignation and social unrest and blah, 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 all these other things that we're talking about right now. But um, <laughs> so it's really easy to put out a statement about how an imp our, important our employees are and we want good people. That's, that's really easy to do, but be quite honest. Get yourself a good publicist or a good public information person or communicator. And they can put out lots of uh, interesting words. The challenge is looking at the system itself that created or contributed to the environment that people are in and really going to change it or even better, starting all over again. I honestly believe that virtually everything that we do as human beings should be restarted regularly. It's like a computer. I, if you run your computer day after day after day after day after day after month after year, eventually it slows down because the memory gets used up. So why is it that we think we can have these human enterprises that were started five years ago, 10 years ago, 200 years ago? I still have folks in my country that, that wanna make me really excited about a constitution that was written and I was three-fifths of a person. So while I value some of the things, I don't value it specifically, uh, but some of the revisions that have been made are pretty good, but underneath it, the system continues to work the way it was because it wasn't written for me. It, it, was, it wasn't written for women. It was written for white slaveholding property owners that, you know, again, over time, we've worked our way through the process, but if we go back to, so if you look at any system, every system, it's perfectly designed to produce whatever it's producing. So if you want something different, you have to do something different and do something focused on the people that are there today, not the ones that were there 10, 15, 20, 30, 50 years ago. And so I get accused quite often of being very practical. And uh, <laughs> I love your approach and the, the way that you've explained the difference between caring and empathy and, and actually getting something done. And you made the point about making it for the employees that are there now. But the question comes back to you, how? Well, it, I wish I could say it was hard, but I don't believe that it is. I, I, I don't. I, I just don't believe it's all that hard. It is, A, what do we want to get done? What do we want to get done? And I find a lot of organizations have no idea what they want to get done. They're simply doing what they always did, but they don't know what they want to get done next. It's trying to go back and, oh, we've been in business for 125 years and we've done this thing. 
And it's, so you have two choices with your past. You can use it as a reference or as a residence. And I find there's a lot of people residing in what they did yesterday and last week and, they, and continue to try to reproduce that. That's a part of the problem. Because to do what you did, you have to continue to repeat what you did to get the same outcome that you did. But you're not going to get anything different. And often you end up with current people who weren't there, who, who weren't involved in that, who don't really have, they don't, they don't even know what you're talking about. So when you and your friends that you've been around and you, know, you all grew up together and you all live in the same community or whatever, and you all are telling these stories that, you know, that relate to the both of you, and I wasn't there, you cut me out by doing that. It may not be intentional, but so first of all, figure out what you want to do going forward. What do we want to do next? Now, what do we do last time? What do we do next? What is it going to take in terms of resources, including people and time and money and political? What resources do we need to get that done? Who's interested in joining us and how do we get them engaged? And I wish I could, now again, you could go into lots of, you know, detailed analysis and papers and all, but I, I really think it's really just that simple because if you can't do the first one, you're never going to get to the other three. No, uh, all important parts of the process, but let's focus on the get them engaged. So you have employees that maybe have been doing it the way it's always been done. Uh, they're not motivated. They're not engaged. What would be your advice on trying to turn that around, trying to get employees engaged in a new way of interacting? So again, it's important that we go back. So why would they be engaged? Why would they be engaged in what you're doing? That's part of the issue, though. They're going to get engaged in what we are doing. Most people uh, will not shoot holes in a boat that they're actually in. And what happens is a lot of these organizations, we, or a lot of even groups, we come up, I get in my head and I go like, I think this is a great idea. Who can I get to help me do what I want to do? And, and I immediately have cut them out. I, I, I think it's really important as early as possible to involve other people in the journey that we say we want to take together. Not the journey I want to take and you're going to help me, but the journey we are going to take. Now, to take this journey, only one of us can have our hand on the wheel driving at the same time. We can't have four people all grabbing the wheel, but we all have a role to play. So if my role is to handle the wheel, your role may be to read the map. Someone else might be, it's like we're going on the family vacation when, you know, uh, you know, mom or dad has their hand on the wheel, uh, you know, and the other parent is, you know, talking with the kids and passing the toys and the snacks back and forth. They're, everybody has a role to play. Even the kids have a role to play because we can't get there if they can't, you know, you know, not jump over the seats and all that type of thing. There's a role they have to play. They have to be able to control their bladder for more than 10 minutes, that type of thing. But we've all got a role to play. And because often it's not clear what my role is. You hire me. You say a bunch of stuff that you think you have to say about how we're an equal opportunity employer and how we care about your safety and how we want to make money and treat our customers well, but you never really get into detail about what that means or what my role is. And, then you, and even worse, in some cases, you get hired, you get tossed into the fire, and you have no idea what to expect. So my expectation is made up in my head, and the stress occurs when I find out that, oh, I guess I did that wrong. 
And that's when the big, we have many organizations, their disciplinary policy is huge and they have no policy whatsoever to recognize people, none. It's all about, you know, it's all about cracking the whip and making people do stuff. And, you know, sadly in the United States, um, particularly in certain parts of the country, there's a little bit of the old, you know, plantation kind of mentality still around. That there are people who feel like that I'm the overseer and you, you, I own you. These are my employees. No, these are other human beings who you've asked to be engaged with you to accomplish something. But when it comes down to actually involving them, I think it's sometimes difficult for people to just, you know, let go a little bit and let's decide what we, I'm going to be engaged when I, you know, have, feel like I, I'm contributing to what we're doing, not just doing what I'm told. Yeah. Uh, the way I say it, David, is I want to know that what I do matters and I want to know that who I am matters. And if yes. we can do that for each employee, that's a, a one way to get engagement. Absolutely. Now, I know you also talk about um, avoiding the idea that there's a cookie cutter approach, that there's a flavor of the month, buy right. this program, do this right. thing, and it's all going to um, work out. Can you speak a little bit about that concept? Yeah, I, I can, because again, cookie cutter approaches are kind of like the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have done unto you presupposes that we both enjoy the same things. And we don't, we don't. And, and, and to say that does not mean that your thing or my thing are wrong or bad. Different does not mean deficient, but it does mean different. And that's a part of the challenges. Again, we assume, organizations assume, groups of people, individuals assume that if we simply look over across the fence with that group who kind of does kind of the same thing that we do and we'll get what they do, we'll bring it over here and we'll implement and, it, and it'll go well. And it rarely does, it rarely does. Because the thing that it does is it, <laughs> it, uh, it kind of forgets that the group of people that I'm working with are different from the people over there. And some of these people may have come from over there. Think about a sports team who sees, oh, yeah, they have a great quarterback or running back or what have you at the other team and they uh, even or, or in college. And we want to draft them and bring them here. But our offense is slightly different because we don't have it's not identical. It, it's not unless you're using the same identical people, which I haven't found that either. I mean, pick your group uh, just because people look the same doesn't mean they think the same doesn't mean they feel the same about anything. And it's important that we do these regular assessments of the people that are involved in the thing that we are doing right now and the things we want to do in the future. I, this is a controversial for some, but you know, I'm not sure why we do employment references at all. I, I, don't, I don't understand the point because, so we bring you into this organization and we say, we want you to do this set of things with this group of people, but we call the last set of people who may or may not have been doing the same thing, who may or may not have even enjoyed one another, people leave, they left that other place for a reason. And often they left because there just wasn't a match. They weren't getting, you know, the, they weren't getting the supports that they needed. They, you know, they'd outgrow the position, what have you, or their supervisor was not very good, but we call them and go like, well, what happened over there? And then we bring that information over into a new environment and we actually taint the possibility because of what the person did six months or a year ago. Uh, I do not believe 
that the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. I think one predictor of future behavior is past behavior. It's one of them. Uh, but, but again, when we do, when we focus on the past, we also kind of isolate or take away the opportunity for a person to get better, to grow, to develop, to be a better person and a different person in a different environment. So I, 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 there is no such thing as a cookie cutter approach. There isn't. They, and they don't work. Show me how they work. Show me one situation where it worked over here and you do the identical same thing at the other place and it actually works with a different set of people. And I'll, I don't think you can find it. No, I, I, I agree with you on two levels. One, that there is no cookie cutter approach. I always say I love a good question that if you ask the right questions, you can use these questions with any group, but then you take the unique answers that come from that group in order yes. to have your yes. uh, intervention or program. But the other thing that made me smile, David, is um, your concept that uh, past behavior is not necessarily the only predictor of future behavior. And um, I've been accused of being um, naive or an optimist, but I believe strongly that people can change, that they can, they can. learn, that they can they grow. Can. I'm not the same person I was 20 years ago, not even not. close, really. And right. I, I, I feel that way about people that often they'll live up to our expectations of them. Yes, and, they will. And, and, yeah, and it goes back to what you said um, about if there's a gap between expectations and what people uh, actually experience. If they know I'm expecting you to be successful, I'm expecting you to thrive, I'm expecting you to have a bad day occasionally, and I'm expecting you to get up from that and, and manage that uh, I've rarely been disappointed in people um, yes. in terms of that, that they will. That's right. That's right. No, I, uh, yeah, I, it, it makes me think a bit about, you know, about some of the things that as I got older, I heard people say to their children, it's the, you know, you're just like your dad, or you're just like your mom, or, you know, you're never going to be anything, or well, these, these kind of negative messaging that often comes from the herd of the parent it has really nothing to do with the kids. You know, it's, you know, I, I hate your dad, so you have to hate him too. I hate your mom, so you ought to hate her too. Or I hate my work and you ought to, you know, blah, blah, blah. But we don't give the child the opportunity to have the experience themselves and make their own decision about this environment. And, and that, that carries into the workplace uh, because, you know, there are people in the workplace today who hate their job. They hate the organization. They hate the people that they're around. They probably shouldn't be there at all, but because they... I have gotten stuck, you know, they've just gotten stuck. So everyone who comes around them has to experience that from them. You know, I, I had folks who, when I was a firefighter, they, you know, I said, oh, I'm, I'm going to get promoted. And, and I can still remember people talking about, oh, that, you know, that, you know, the, the process is rigged and you'll never, you know, I, I took the test three times and then blah, 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 blah. And I go like, well, well I can do it. And I did. Uh, <laughs> But, and as I worked my way through the system, I found, as a matter of fact, when I was a fire captain, I had a couple of folks, both who were older than me, who had taken the promotional exam before and had not done very well. And I says, well, and I was studying to be a battalion chief at the time, they want to be lieutenants. So I says, I'll help you. I, I, let, let's work together because I believe that I could do it and I believe they could do it. Well, we ultimately became the only group the entire time I was there. We all got promoted within eight months of one another. 
We dumped the entire station. We all left uh, by virtue of promotion. But I believe that's because that's the expectation in the environment that I set by saying, hey, you can do it. If you want to, you can do it. You don't have to. Doesn't mean you're a failure because you don't. But if you want to, you can. And I'll help you if you want to. But if you don't want to, I'm certainly not going to make you and call you a bad person and say you're you know, a slugger and all these other names we give to people who don't do the things the things that we like the way that we like. That's trying to control other people. And I also, I'm not real big into that either. I'm, I'm a bit of a libertarian when it comes to, you know, freedom means doing what's good for you the way you want to do it. Now we live in a, in a culture. I mean, I can't do everything that would be good for me. <laughs> you know, and that's, that's just about figuring, I can't drive as fast as I want all the time. That's not good for me because eventually I'm going to run into somebody and be killed. So that's, that's how I rationalize following me. I follow these rules because they're good for me. You know, ultimately I want to live. I, you know, I don't want to be in jail, you know, those types of things. So, but I think all this is really important in terms of how we share our expectations of the world uh, with other people. One employer said to me, um, you know, all this talk about bringing your whole self and finding self-actualization at work. We're not having the tail wag the dog. We're in charge here. We're going to do it. But what the evidence suggests is that when people know what their intended outcome is, so they are measured on an outcome that is decided outside of them, but they're allowed to um, really look at how they're going to reach that goal how they're going to do it. So that's where the latitude comes from, is that performance goes up, productivity goes up, the bottom line is improved. And so uh, a lot of the old school thinking, even though we have evidence that it's better for the employer, um, some still don't believe it. They, they don't, they don't. And, and I heard something that you said that, you know, so again, it's these traditional organizations where the goals are set at the top and uh, they cascade down through the organization and people do their part. I still believe that if we, if there are even thousands of people, if we feel that our contribution at the, at the front line really makes a difference to the ultimate goal, then I'm going to contribute more. And some of that is really about methodology. It's about the words that we use. It's about the transparency of the process. And the more I feel a part of what we are doing, not what you are doing, because the reality is, I'll be blunt, I don't really care what you're doing, just like you don't care what I'm doing either, but we should care about what we want to do. That's the point. I'm not suggesting at all that, you know, that you should necessarily pass your role and responsibility to somebody, but the thing is, this is what we are trying to achieve. That's where we have to agree. Because if we don't agree, I will do my thing, you will do yours, and we will not succeed. Yeah, I'm in a unique position because most of the employers that I work with um, are self-selected because mm -hmm. they want to do the right thing, because they want to improve psych health and safety for their employees. So I get, I get sort of the cream of the crop that yes. I get to work with. And, and many of them do what you say is, sure, there's organizational goals and strategies that are set up there, but they, they do cascade down and back up again so that each employee knows how they contribute to it, how yes. they um, make a difference and wh what their value and contribution is. So yes. it's, it's not giving up control 
uh, of the organization, it is empowering the employees yes. to do their best yes. work. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, that I, <laughs> I really, 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 um, I think some folks are catching on to this. And I, I believe going forward, just as a society, that the more we catch on to it, the better society we're going to be. You know, it, it's, there is, there's no downside to all of us winning. There is no downside to that. There, there, there is no downside to that. There is a total downside to certain people winning and thinking that those of us who are losing are going to keep just doing that. I mean, that just doesn't, to me, doesn't make a whole lot of sense how you think that you're going to be able to just simply, uh, so there's this social exchange theory relationships. It says that both parties in the relationships have to contribute. Why is it that you think that I have to do all the contributing? I have to show up for work at a certain time. I have to, you know, be paid a wage that I don't necessarily even think is fair. I have to take all the psychosocial risk and all of the uh, physical risk and the chemical. I have to take all the risk. And you think I'm going to continue to do that year after decade after decade? I, and what the pandemic has done for many people is pull that curtain back and go like, you know, I don't think I want to do that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the other thing I found, I was just, you know, I have a lot of these kinds of discussions with my youngest son, who's an entrepreneur, who I don't think will ever work for anyone else ever again. Uh, I don't think he will, because he said, Dad, I don't like the way they treat me. I don't like the way they treat me. And I'm good at what I do. I know I'm good at what I do, but I'm not going to be exploited by these people. And when I talk to others in his age range, the 30s and 40s, they all say it that way. They're not going to do it. So if you want to be the old school, that, that's okay. The folks who are willing to simply come and be exposed to the what they perceive to be nonsense of the old school organization, you're not going to find a lot of them. And then you're going to be stuck with the people that you say you don't necessarily want. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the world, she is a changing. There's no question. And, and it's, it's interesting that we're at this um, place of transformation when psychological health and safety is suddenly so well known, because I do believe that that is going to be the uh, dividing factor between those who can recruit and retain talent and yes. those who have a much more difficult time. Yes. Um, David, another thing that you talk about is that psychological safety is a leadership and management concept. Now, I know that there's some organizations that see it as something for the frontline employees to assess and address there. Tell me more about how you feel it's a, a leadership and management concept. So the, the two scholars, at least the two scholars that, that I came across, uh, Dr. William Kahn and Dr. Amy Edmondson, both approached this concept of psychological safety as a leadership and management concept. Uh, they, they were not, they're not occupational safety and health people like me. So, and, and I, but I, so I honestly believe that psychological safety is about an environment where people feel they can bring their whole self, that the, the team agrees, this is, it's kind of, it's a cultural type of thing. But, and it's, it's wonderful, it's very important. It should be the type of environment and culture that every collective of human beings seeks. But, but getting there and staying there are two different things. We can, you can get there by accident. 
you can have an environment that feels safe to people by accident. And, you know, one of the accidents is, of course, it's safe because we're kind of all alike. We all have been around each other. It's a family business, for example. We, we've grown up together. We know each other's, you know, ins and outs and idiosyncrasies. And we, of course, it's easy for us. And it feels safe for us because we're around our family. Uh, the challenge is when you bring in someone new, someone different. And uh, every human being brings a bag of psychosocial hazards with them. They do. And it's not, it's not uh, nefarious. It's not negative. It is just the human experience. Anytime we get introduced to a new human being that we've not been around before, that we don't quite understand, it's, you know, there's, there's something about the amygdala firing up because there's something about that person that represents whatever in our lives. And if we don't address those hazards as they uh, manifest with this particular group, we're not going to keep a psychologically safe environment, which is not. We can, again, we can start there as these folks get older as they have other things that go on in their life outside of work, even if the people are the same. So family business, one of the family marries someone else. When you marry other people, you get exposed to the psychosocial hazards from their family because you got to go to Thanksgiving and Christmas and birthdays. And you get to understand that, oh, wow, there's some abuse in that household. Or they've got, you know, areas that they've got that uncle that no one wants to talk about. All of the, these are the human experiences that are just out there and they they affect us all different and if we simply assume that oh we've got a great environment here and we're, we're just going to keep on doing what we're doing eventually that will decline into something that's not safe for everybody I, one of the reasons that i left the seattle fire department is that there were people there who would never see me as an adult they would always see me as a recruit as the kid period they they had and this is like in a lot of families, some folks have difficulty watching their kids grow up and people grow up, people change, as we talked about before. And can we accept them for who they are today, not who they used to be, who they were once were, and we had that great, they've changed, things are different, and we have to constantly kind of adjust. So that's why I say that it is not only important to have this goal of a psychologically safe environment, to have psychological safety present, it is just as important and maybe more so to identify the psychosocial hazards that people are being exposed to in this environment and at the very least identify and mitigate them to the extent we can. It, the, your whole um, story there hits me to remember when we were first talking about the National Standard of Canada on Psychological Health and Safety in the Workplace. And at the time, we were talking about a standard on workplace mental health. But because we knew that when we talk about mental health, at least in Canada, that many people's mind go immediately to mental illness yes. and a, a workplace mental health program was often a one and done or a program around awareness or stories. And we wanted people to stop and think about this as a process of a continual improvement with responsibility at all levels. So at the leadership level, as well as on the front line. And that's why um, the technical committee specifically chose psychological health and safety because health and safety, you never say my workplace is now safe and I don't have to do anything anymore. 
right? right? You're, you're right. always looking right. for hazards. Right. And right. I love the way you just told the story about marrying into another family and you take that on and you have to learn how to manage. And in some cases, it means a reset um, yes. of expectations, a reset yes. of behaviors. And yes. uh, yeah, so continual improvement for psychological health and safety is um, an important concept as well. Um, Dr. Martin Shane um, gave us a definition of psychological health and safety in the workplace. But I'd love to hear how people describe it to someone who has no idea what we're talking about. How would you describe it, David? Psychological health and safety is really not much different than physical health and safety. It's, it's really not much different. So do you, uh, you and frankly, this is something we talk about. Uh, I'm really involved with the, actually on the board of directors of the National Safety Council. And we talk about the fact that you can't be safe unless you feel safe. There's, there is a connection. There's a connection. So you can't be safe physically unless you feel safe. There, there is no way to separate the two. So psychological health and safety is about how you feel. How, how, emotionally, to, how are you feeling today? And you mentioned earlier about, you know, the fact that when we talk about mental health and mental illness, we seem to disconnect the mental health and mental illness from the hazards that people are exposed to. It's same, the same thing physically. You can be ill, you can be exposed to something that will make you ill, or you can also be injured. And they are two separate kinds of situations, but they both result in you not feeling well or feeling good. Pain is generally not a good thing for most human beings. It's not something that we seek to try to, to seek out. How much more pain can I have? We tend to seek out pleasure more so than we seek out pain. So if I were you know, simply walking up to someone, so the same way you look at your job and don't want to get physically injured, why not look at your same job and how do we keep you from being emotionally injured? That's it. We don't want, so, so a psychological safety environment is one where we minimize or eliminate the emotional injuries that you're going to get at work. Yeah, great. A great way to um, make it clear to people. Um, David, you've been in this position. And so I'm wondering what your advice is to somebody who is in a workplace where they don't feel psychologically safe. So an employee who doesn't feel empowered to speak up, what would your advice to them be? Well, I honestly believe that it starts with them doing an assessment of themselves. Before we do an assessment of other people, we should do an assessment of ourselves. Uh, I, I tell folks that I met myself when I was 26 years old. Uh, there's a decision that I made in my life at 26 year old, years old about where I was living, the people I was around, that I was uh, doing what I was told, but not doing what felt right for me. And so, and I have not looked back, not a single day and regretted the decision I made at that time, that I had to go do what was right for me. And whoever wants to go along with me can, if you don't, that's also okay, but I have to do this for me. The same thing applies not everyone fits in every culture and every organization. You just don't. You don't. 
but the, the, it's important to give yourself options. Giving yourself options. So that means investing in yourself and making sure that you can do more than one thing, that you can, you're adaptable, that, you, uh, that you're competent. Because if you're not competent and adaptable, that's how you end up being stuck. I'm doing this job that I hate. Well, what about learning a new skill? Why well, don't have the money? Find it. Money's only an issue in the absence of value. And so maybe that's a handbag I can't buy or a ball game I can't go to, or this is the decision I had to make 10 years ago. The wife and I we were going through that experience. I remember sitting in a hotel room in Chicago. I'll never forget it. And like I said, I was making, making a lot of money, but I felt like crap because of how I was being treated. And so I had to decide I had to decide for myself whether or not that was worth it. And I had to see whether or not she'd go along with me. And she did. She said, look, we, we need to live our lives differently. We need to put ourselves financially in a situation where we don't have to make this kind of money because if the money comes with this, this is not something that we need. So we redesigned basically our entire life. We, we moved from the Seattle area to the Atlanta area because the cost of living was less. Um, we lived here before. It was more culturally relevant to us. Here, I'm not a minority. I'm not. Uh, and so all these things were going on at the same time. So she was actually able to find a job here quicker than I was. And so uh, she, we, we, we moved back and, and we've been through, going through this process of redesigning our lives. We paid off all our debt. I did it first. I don't owe anybody anything. And I don't say that to be boastful. I say that's a survival mechanism because I, so, you know, we have a cable and the phone, all that type of thing, but we don't have a mortgage and we don't have a, a, a car payment. So again, that means that you know, I drive a plug-in hybrid, but I drive a plug-in hybrid because I don't want to spend the money that it takes to put gas in the SUV that I had. So that's a choice that I made. So consequently, I don't have to do certain things and work for people and be treated in a certain way. I don't have to because I know my basic needs are going to be met. And again, this is a, you know, it, it's been a journey. And what I would say is if you're in that situation right now, start plotting your way out. Don't, don't, or you, you can give up. You can give up and, oh, this is going to be terrible and live the rest of my life and, and be like a lot of people that you know who simply hate their life. They hate, but they hate their life because they just gave up. And I frankly, I don't believe in giving up. I, I just don't. I, I don't. I figure every day if I am on the right side of the turf, I got a chance. And I learned that from my mother, that, that it's not, it may not be great today, but it might be great tomorrow, but I got to start doing something. I can't just sit around and all oh, they're mistreating me and, and you know, but maybe they are. So that also means exhausting the remedies that you have, you know? So if there's a policy on that, it's go to the supervisor and say, hey, this isn't working for me. And don't be afraid. Then go to the next person, go as high as you can go. If, it, if you work your way through the organization, they won't do anything about it. There are resources outside of you know, outside of that company, there's federal laws and state laws. And, but if you never use them, you never know if they're going to work. They may not change that situation, but I figure you exhaust every remedy possible. And then if that doesn't work, you move on to something else. Don't, I mean, it's always easy to find a job when you got a job, of course, <laughs> but don't, don't, don't let people stick you there. Take control of your own circumstances to the extent you can, and then find your own tribe. Sometimes that means starting your own thing. Sometimes that means just finding another. But I, I don't believe that anybody absolutely has to stay where they are long term. You may have to stay there for a while, but there's hope on the other side, but you got to start working towards it. Yeah.
Yeah, that's that's very profound. Um, I remember, David, somebody telling me years ago, if you don't like your job, then become a master at it. And <laughs> I, I'm like, what? And they said, if you ace it, like you really do well, first of all, it's giving you the confidence you need when you go for an interview, right? right. I'm doing right. this job that I hate, but I'm doing it really, really well. Right. And it also gets you that reference, rightly or wrongly, that uh, that you did do your job and do it well. And uh, I, I had to grapple with that. If you hate a job, you're supposed to master it, but it's what you do to focus on who you are until right. you can make that move. Yeah, right, so, right. Yeah, I, I've, I've often shared with folks, uh, career counseling, career coaching, that type of thing. You first have to decide what you wanna be. You have to decide, decide when you wanna be it. And you have to decide where. Because if you get the first one, the other two are a little bit easy. If you know what you want to be and are 100% clear about that, the when and the where are negotiable. Because when may, you know, it may take a little bit. I, I may be able to stay where I am. It's just going to take a little bit longer. I've got to put in a little bit more work. And, you know, so again, the, um, the work in my, you know, the, the, my, my undergraduate degree took 12 years. Uh, and that's another thing I don't owe anybody for. That's why it took 12 years, because I didn't get a loan. I paid out of my pocket because I didn't, you know, another little secret is I, I had to file bankruptcy when I was 19 years old because the people around me, they told me that's what I was supposed to do. And so that's, I, I have this kind of different thing with debt. I just, it makes my skin crawl. So I'd rather do, you know, if I can't, you know, pay for it myself, you know, I've done a car loan, you know, mortgage, all that type of thing, but never with the intent of staying indebted to people because, if I if you owe me something, I control a little bit of you, and I don't like being controlled. So, uh, but again, I know who I want to be, and I'm willing to wait, and I'm willing to you know go wherever it is. To be quite honest, and if you do this part well enough, the other two will, will come along. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great advice. So, David, we're coming to the end of our time together. And we started off talking about psychological health and safety and your research around that. And uh, in, in, to wrap this up, what would you say um, right now are next steps for those who say, I'm ready. I'm ready to make a change in my workplace. I'm ready to take, make a change in the work team. Um, what would your, your starting point be for them? Uh, the starting point would be, uh, of course, many of us have heard of the seven habits of highly effective people. One of those habits is begin with the end in mind. That, that is the first. So what is it that you want to be personally? And what is it that we want to be collectively? It's taking the time to figure that out. Because once we figure that out, then we can figure out how to do it. We can't, don't skip over that part Be, because simply being busy does not necessarily mean you're being effective. And that's what I find is a lot of folks get busy. Oh, let's bring in a, a person. The first thing when, when, matter of fact, I had someone call me the other day that, to do an you know, assessment of their organization. And my first question is, so what do you all want to be? Do you want to shoot for the sky or you want to solve the initial problem that you have or you want to put a Band-Aid on it? And I'm not, that's not a value judgment. Sometimes the only thing you can do is put a Band-Aid on the wound that you have right now. But if that's the case, why are we talking about, oh, you got a five-year plan and, you know, someday we're going to, that's not where you are. 
where you are, put, let's, put, let's get the Band-Aid on. Let's work through that piece. On the other hand, there are those, we've got plenty of Band-Aids. We've got all the basic stuff done, but we never seem to know where we're going next. It's because we don't really have a plan. We're being led by people and not being led by the process and not by the plan. So let's first figure out what I want to be and what we want to be, and then start to figure out the steps it's going to take to get there. You may or may not have all the resource and information that you need. That's what folks like, like us do is, is kind of help people. The folks who come to you are coming to you for one of two reasons. Well, probably one of three reasons. A, they had to. Somebody told them they had to. B, they think it's probably going to save them a little bit of money. They've looked at the bottom line. They think, oh, we can't afford to continue to pay out these, you know, the impacts of not. And then the other folks come to you because, look, this just feels like the right thing to do. And again, ultimately, does it really matter why they do it? It matters that you do it. But you have to figure out, what do I want to be? What do we want to be? And then go back and start figuring out the steps that you're going to take because, again, no cookie cutter approaches. <laughs> you know, there are no solutions. I, I can't just watch that webinar that, you know, those two people talking and walk away. Oh, we're going to solve this problem. Well, you know, again, I'm glad to help you. But I, I can't, you know, you can't give that stuff to people. It took a lot longer to get you in this situation than a few minutes. So it's going to take you a little bit. To, you can probably get out a lot quicker. And you get out a lot quicker if you don't do it by yourself. There's an African proverb that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And that is a beautiful way uh, to end this podcast. Uh, David, thank you so much. I really appreciate you spending the time. And uh, I know people are really going to soak up all of this wisdom that you shared with us today. Um, I want to say that the videos uh, will end up on the Flourish DX uh, podcast website, and there'll be clips on uh, both my own LinkedIn and their LinkedIn, so you'll be able to uh, share them far and wide. And uh, thank you for being my guest, and thank you for being you. Marianne, thank you so much. Uh, it, it's been a pleasure to get to know you, and uh, this has been cool. Thanks. Take care. You've been listening to the Psych Health and Safety Canada podcast. To stay up to date with the best content on workplace mental health in North America, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and join the Flourish DX community at www.flourishdx.com.